It's Guy's Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. All right, welcome to Guy's Guy's Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to show number, I think it's about 385 shows we've done. And this is our first show from my brand new studio in sunny Southern California. Finally, after all of this time, I have relocated with my family to Southern California. We're in the San Diego area, and so far, we're loving it. The weather is absolutely perfect every day. Uh, this time of year, New York is wonderful also. You can't beat New York in September and October, uh, but we're loving Southern California, and we love New York also. But I'm here now. I've talked about it many times in the show, and uh, here we are at our new studio, and I'm having a blast, and I can't wait to get started. As part of that, we have got a great guest today. We have radio host extraordinaire Tom Hartman of the show, The Tom Hartman Program, that's been running for over a decade, and he is also a New York Times bestselling author of over 24 books. We're going to talk about his book about the Supreme Court, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. I think it's a good topic for us on Guys Guys Radio because we're going to lay out arguments as to what the Supreme Court was originally created as, what was their task, what was the objective, and how things have changed over time for better and for worse. As you know on Guys Guys Radio, I don't take sides politically, or at least I do my best not to. I want to be fair and I want to have truth and information out there and I want to share the information I get from our guests with you listeners so you can make the determination as to what works for you and what doesn't. So I haven't gotten into the whole, you know, uh, Republican-Democrat thing because there's lots of other venues where you can get that. I believe in disruption, but I believe also in the right type of leadership. And uh, we've got a crazy time now in America, so I don't want to feed the fire. I want to help put information and truth out there and allow the listeners and allow America to make its decisions as to where they want to land on different topics. So I just put the information out there. So Tom, Tom is a self-described uh, uh, progressive, and he's going to lay out his case for why the Supreme Court has kind of been corrupted over the last 50 years or so by the influx of money and corporations. And as we know, when money gets involved in any type of institution, whether it's government or a corporation, you're going to have influence there. So it's going to be a great discussion on Guys Guys Radio. Again, this is my first show from California. I am excited about it. I can't wait to get started. So let's get right to it on Guys Guys Radio. Guys, Guys Radio, a special guest today, uh, Tom Hartman. He is one of the leading, if not the leading, uh, progressive pundits and radio personalities on air today. He has over 7 million listeners per week on his show, The Tom Hartman Program. He's been doing the show for over 10 years. He's written uh, over 24 books on subjects that are uh, very important to us, uh, spirituality, NLP, ADD, the Kennedy assassination, middle class, erosion, and the war in the middle class. He's just an amazing guy. As we do on Guys Guys Radio, I, I'm not, I don't consider myself a progressive or a conservative. I, you know, I like the fact that Trump has been disruptive, but I don't think personally he's the right guy, but I think disruption is a good thing. And Tom considers himself a democratic socialist. A lot of people take that the wrong way. I don't. I understand it. And I think that one of, one of the things I want to do with the show is really put information out there and have everybody make their own educated decisions on what they see as truth, what they can be open to, and always look at the other side, what somebody has to say in an argument, even, if, even with things so 
polarized nowadays, it's really important that we listen to the other side and say, you know, sometimes you say like, how could they think that? But there's a reason. And we have to kind of open ourselves up and really take the other person's perspective and say, maybe there's some truth there, maybe there isn't. And then we make our determinations. I want to bring on Tom Hartman to Guys Guys Radio. I'm so thrilled you're here. Thank you, Tom. Well, thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure being here with you. We're going to talk, focus uh, the first part of the show on uh, his new book called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. So why don't we get right into that? Um, I, what I'd like to do, Tom, if it's okay with you, is really give our listeners some information, uh, kind of a grounding as to what the Supreme Court is, why it was created, and why it has become so politicized over the last 50 years or so. And let's start with when and why was the Supreme Court created by our founding fathers? Well, it, 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 for two reasons. One, we needed a court that could adjudicate, uh, adjudicate uh, disputes between the states or between the federal government and individual states, uh, or between the federal government and other federal governments, or and certain parts of maritime law. That was one of the functions. Those are the primary areas of jurisdiction where the, the Supreme Court would be the first court that you would go to. But then the other the other reason, and the one that has become you know far more important and and ninety nine percent of what the court does, is being the court of last resort. If two people are involved in a lawsuit and one of them wins and the other one appeals and then and then the guy who won loses the appeal and so he reappeals and you keep working your way up right. the food chain of the courts, there has to be a place where the buck stops. And the Supreme Court is that place. It's the it's the final appellate jurisdiction in the United States. Um, that was the that was the idea. Uh, that's what's laid out in the Constitution. That's what uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, sold us uh, with the. Uh, with the uh, uh, Federalist Papers, and uh, but the court has gone a little farther than that over the years. Has the court always been structured the same way, where there's 12 justices, or has it e- evolved over time at all in any way, shape, or form in terms of structure? Yeah. Well, when, when the court started out, it was uh, either five or seven. I don't recall which. They expanded it to seven. Then it went all the way up to 10 uh, by the time of Abraham Lincoln. Um, when Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson came in, Andrew Johnson was, uh, you know, a slave owner and a, a friend of the Confederate States and the Confederate cause. And, and uh, this so horrified Congress, both the House and the Senate, that they passed a law reducing the size of the Supreme Court down to six and uh, so that he couldn't make any appointments, or excuse me, down to seven, either six or seven. Anyway. Um, and then after, after, uh, Lincoln or after Andrew Johnson left and Ulysses Grant became president, they raised it up to nine, which is where it's been pretty much ever since. Okay. And, it's, uh, you know, and so and Congress has the power to do that, to regulate the courts, to change the number of people in the courts. And, and like I just said with Lincoln or with Andrew Johnson, uh, they've actually done that for purely political purposes in the past successfully. Mm-hmm. Let's let's dig into that a little bit. It seems like we're in a time where the Supreme Court has been politicized over our, our lifetimes, if you will. Uh, has this uh, uh, has this occurred in the past, or is this the first time that it got very political? It seems like it described something with Andrew Johnson, where it was, sounded like a political decision at that point, also. Well, that was Congress making a political decision, but they didn't want Johnson putting any anybody on the court who was, uh, you know, friendly to the Confederacy, essentially. Um, the court got, uh, political is not quite the right word, but the court got co-opted by big corporations in the 1880s 
um, for another book I was writing that I wrote back in 2000 called Unequal Protection, which is about the 14th Amendment and how corporate personhood happened, how corporations mm-hmm. became people. Um, I was digging through the Library of Congress uh, in the uh, records of uh, Morrison Remick Waite, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court back in the 1886 era. And um, Stephen Field and several other members of the court were basically openly being bribed by the railroad owners, particularly Jay Gould. Um, so the court made a whole series of decisions in the 1880s and 1890s that were super corporate friendly, although that wasn't considered partisan at the time. Um, it got real partisan with the election of Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, for, for the first four years of his administration, uh, the court repeatedly struck down laws that were passed by Congress and signed by Roosevelt that have been proposed by Roosevelt, child labor laws, minimum wage laws, uh, the right of unions to strike, things like that, and uh, which led to this famous 1937 court packing scheme on the part of FDR. Um, the court has been pretty political ever since. It was somewhat apolitical. FDR ended up replacing all, all of the justices on the court um, you know, during, during the years of his presidency. And uh, we had a relatively stable and, and kind of centrist or middle-of-the-road court right up through um, basically the end of the Eisenhower early, early uh, Kennedy administrations. Um, but it was really in 1971 when Nixon put uh, Lewis Powell, the infamous author of the Powell Memo, mm-hmm. or 72, that Nixon put him on the court, that the court became a real blunt political instrument uh, for the right. And, and it has been moving more and more and more in that direction ever since. Obviously, you know, Mitch McConnell withholding Merrick Garland's uh, nomination for purely political purposes, uh, you know, denying Barack Obama for mm-hmm. almost an entire year the, uh, the nomination that the Constitution entitles him to. Uh, and, and now, you know, this is the current situation. But, but the, the, the big battle, Robert, has really, um, you know, throughout the history of the court, has not been so much a political battle as it's been a battle around the power of the court. What exactly can the Supreme Court do and not do? And um, prior to 1803, from, from 1789, you know, when we became the modern federal republic until 1803, uh, the court was just a court of last resort. Um, some people refer to it as the dogs and chickens court because so many, you know, it was a very rural country at the time mm-hmm. and there were a lot of right. disputes between farmers. Um, but, and, you know, somebody's dog would eat somebody's chickens kind of thing. But um, in 1803, well, actually just before that, 18, in 1801, in, in March of 1801, um, when John Adams was leaving office and Thomas Jefferson was replacing him, Jefferson won the election of 1800. Um, Adams, the last thing Adams did, because Adams and Jefferson absolutely hated each other, the last two years of Adams' presidency, Adams uh, you know, was president, Jefferson was vice president. For two years, they didn't even speak. Um, and so what Adams did as a, basically a screw you to Jefferson on his way out on his last day was to appoint Je- Jefferson's third cousin and bitterest political enemy, uh, John Marshall, to be not only on the Supreme Court, but to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And a couple of years later, two years later in 1803, in a case uh, that was, again, a dispute that went back to the Adams administration, it was a case called Marbury versus Madison. Uh, where a guy who wanted to be a federal judge was suing James Madison, the Secretary of State, for not letting him be a federal judge, basically. Um, in that case, uh, the decision that John Marshall came down with was 
that they were going to strike down, the court was going to strike down part of the Judiciary Act of 1796, as I recall, maybe 1797. And, and uh, in doing so, for the very first time, he asserted that the Supreme Court had the power to nullify laws that had been passed by Congress and signed by the president. This completely flipped out Thomas Jefferson. He went nuts. He said, you know, under this uh, consideration, the Constitution has become a, a, a suicide pact. He wrote a letter mm-hmm. to Abigail Adams saying, you know, under this, the court has become basically a monarchy. This is a tyranny. Um, uh, despotism was the word he used. And uh, in a letter to another one of his friends, he said, you know, under this decision, if this stands, the Constitution has become a thing of wax to be mold- molded in the hands of the judiciary. And it was such a, such a, a, a vigorous blowback, and not just from Jefferson, I mean, across the country, there was like, what? They did what? Um, that, and, and this was not how the court was sold to us, by the way, in federal right. papers. Hamilton famously said it would be the least likely to offend because it had neither the power of the purse, the legislature, or the sword, mm-hmm. the executive branch. Um, but anyhow, Jefferson freaked out. And for the rest of his life, and John Marshall was on the court longer than any other Supreme Court justice, uh, or you know, uh, chief justice, uh, he never did it again. And in fact, the second time in a big way that the Supreme Court used judicial review, this, this power to strike down laws, was in 1856, when uh, Chief Justice Robert, Roger Tawney thought, I'm going to solve the slavery problem once and for all. And uh, to do that, what he did was, he, he, it was, the decision was Dred Scott. He ruled that right. uh, people of African ancestry were property in all states in the United States. So, uh, you know, that, for the first 80 or 90 years of the history of the United States, basically, or 70 or 80 years, uh, judicial review was almost never used. Um, since the... 1890s, judicial review has been used aggressively and frequently to the point now that probably 95% of the cases that the court takes and decides on, um, they're deciding based on their interpretation of the Constitution uh, rather than simply being the final appeals court. And and that's um, an area that conservatives have been screaming about for years and years. On my show, I for years, uh, you know, Phyllis Schlafly used to come on my program, and this is one of the few things that we agreed about was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, some of the problems with judicial review. Um, and conservatives were in particular bent out of shape about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision that ended legal segregation and the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. And, uh, you know, they thought one of the solutions is to basically stop judicial review. Now you've got liberals who are concerned about judicial review after the right. court gut voting rights act and, you know, I mean, there's just been no, no shortage of things that you can point to where the court has been, you know, it's, been just, it's destroyed the rights of labor, it's elevated the rights of corporations, um, and, and so forth. So it's a good debate for the day, even though it was the hot debate during Jefferson's presidency. Mm-hmm. Got it. Great answer. Great context. At Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny, our special guest, Tom Hartman, a radio personality. Uh, extraordinaire, and we're talking about the Supreme Court. And what I want to do today is kind of lay out a one-on-one so our listeners could get a sense as to, you know, the Supreme Court's something we hear about all the time. We really don't think about it, like how it got started. So this is a great discussion. One of the things I think that, uh, to, to me, that gets me going is when, you know, Obama nominated Garland and they wouldn't allow him to get the nomination uh, reviewed. And uh, it seems like, why isn't there a rule in place in terms of how 
individuals can be nominated for the court and also uh, credentializing some of the nominees. Like you've got John Roberts, who I, I don't even think he was a judge and he became head of the Supreme Court. Is that, oh, Brett, is that true? Brett Kavanaugh never even tried a case. He was a right. lawyer for Bush and, you know, apparently helped out with the torture stuff and the Guantanamo stuff, right. although uh, they never released those records during his, his hearings. And then he went from that straight to the D.C. Circuit as mm-hmm. a as a judge, as, a, as an appeals court judge, and then from there to the Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, the only law he ever practiced was helping George Bush with, uh, you know, with the criminal war. So how does, how did, how did we get, a, you know, a, a country that's built on the constitution and very thoughtful founding fathers where we have, it seems like a hole in the rules where anybody can be nominated for the Supreme Court, yet there's no set rules on how people can be nominated. Like Obama yeah. was denied and then, you know, uh, McConnell saying something very different now that, you know, they'd want to push somebody through regardless of the timing, if it's your last year in office as president or not. And it doesn't seem like there's any rule in place to dictate how that's done. What are your thoughts on that? Well, McConnell, McConnell is playing hardball politics. You know, basically he's saying sure. uh, we view, we, the Republican Party, or at least the Republicans in the Senate, view the Supreme Court as a political body, not as a judicial body. And we want to make sure the people reflecting our politics are the only people on that court. And, excuse me, the Constitution doesn't specify exactly how the, how the Senate has to act. I think the reason why uh, they don't specify that is because they just assumed that people would, you know, operate in good faith. Obviously, Mitch McConnell is not operating in good faith. Um, Moscow Mitch has, has not often in his career operated in good faith. This is another example of it is taking 200 million bucks from, you know, a, a Russian billionaire oligarch uh, to get himself reelected. Probably another example mm-hmm. that some of the stuff his wife has been up to. But um, the, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that there, there's not that. Now, there could be a Senate rule, but the Senate mm-hmm. and, and, and the Senate rules uh, have to be, uh, it requires just a simple majority, 51 votes to change the Senate rules. Um, or at least in the House it does. Now, and now I heard recently that the Senate rules require a supermajority, so it may take 67 votes. But in any case, there is no Senate rule that says that you have to take that that uh, appointment up immediately. Mm-hmm. So Mitch was just, you know, jumping through the loopholes. Okay. What do you think, Tom, that uh, just uh, our listeners and just everyday citizens need to know? What's the most important things they need to know about the Supreme Court? I think probably the most important thing they need to know is that literally everything in your life has been touched by the Supreme Court. Um, the, the food you eat, whether or not it's safe, clean, pure, Supreme Court decides on that. The drugs you take, whether they can be imported from other countries, where, where they're manufactured, how pure they are, how safe they are, the Supreme Court has final say on that. Um, whether your kids' toys have lead in them, Supreme Court has a final say on that. How safe your car is, the Supreme Court, how your, your air, your water, whether you have the right to vote, whether politicians can take away your right to vote, the Supreme Court has weighed in on all those things. Um, you know, uh, I, there's, you know, whether the water that comes out of your tap is clean or mm-hmm. and pure, uh, there is literally no aspect of life uh, since the Supreme Court has made itself superior to the legislative branch and to the executive branch uh, with that Marbury decision. There is nothing that the Supreme Court doesn't touch. And this should give us all pause. You know, when, when Jefferson <clears throat> went nuts about judicial review, about the Marbury decision, one of his friends, and I think it was George Mason, wrote him a letter saying, um, well, you know, if the Supreme Court doesn't decide what's constitutional, who does? I mean, somebody has to, right? I mean, what if, what if Congress passed a law that said that the president can put anybody in jail who simply insults him? 
right? <laughs> Isn't that you know a clear violation of the First Amendment? And Jefferson responded saying, uh, "Yeah, somebody has to have a final say in what's constitutional, and and that that somebody should be, and this is Jefferson's phrase, the people themselves." And in fact, Larry Kramer, the former dean of the Stanford Law School, uh, wrote a book about judicial review titled "The People Themselves." It's a brilliant book, and laid out the arguments against judicial review, and and and. and you know, in response to people who talk about the law that I just mentioned, you know, the president can put you in jail if you insult him. That law actually was passed. It was passed in 1798. It's the reason why Jefferson and Adams had such a falling out when Adams was president, and Jefferson was vice mm-hmm. president. Uh, it was called, the Alien Sedition Act gave the president the power to uh, imprison people for literally insulting the president. And in fact, the day the law was passed, John Adams ordered Ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach, to be arrested and thrown in prison, where he languished for a year. He lost his newspaper, the Aurora in Massachusetts. And, and it was because Bach had written an op-ed, an editorial, uh, saying, and this is what Adams threw him in prison for, saying that President John Adams is old, toothless, balding, and querulous. Um, literally, that's what he said. And he went to prison for this. There was a guy named uh, Luther, Luther Baldwin who was sitting in a bar in Newark, New Jersey, John Adams and his wife, actually it was Abigail's idea, um, had proclaimed that whenever they came through a town, the local militia had to come out and do a 21-gun salute. And so he was going down the main road in Newark, New Jersey, and Luther's sitting in a bar, you know, and he was the local town drunk. And, uh, and when the guns went off, he said to the bartender, ah, that must be President Adams, they're shooting the guns, I hope they shoot him in the arse. And the bartender turned him in, and John Adams had the guy put in prison. For saying wow. that. I mean, wow. you know, he added in prison more than 20 newspaper publishers. He shut down 16 newspapers, not because they were committing crimes, but because they had committed the crime of insulting or disagreeing with President John Adams. Um, that was not overturned by the Supreme Court. That was overturned by the voters in the election of 1800 when they turned out Adams Federalists and they gave control of the House, the Senate and the White House to Thomas Jefferson's Democratic-Republican Party, what we now call the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They dropped the word Republican in the 1820s. So that was uh, Jefferson's point and example that, you know, either you live, either we live in a genuine Democratic Republic, which is to say that the people have final say right. in all things, or we live in a constitutional monarchy where you have an unelected group of monarchs who have the final say. Now, they're not hereditary monarchs, they're appointed monarchs, but they're still serving for life and they're mm-hmm. answerable to no one. And, uh, you know, that's the big debate around judicial review. And we really haven't had that conversation in the United States in any meaningful way since 1803. Okay. And increasingly, I think we should. Great point. Um, you brought up something there. I just want to uh, veer off a little bit, and that's serving for life. I think uh, a lot of people nowadays say, wow, you know, you get a guy like Brett Kavanaugh, whether you like him or don't like him, he could be in that job for 50 years. It seems to me that who, what was the thinking to make these appointees to the Supreme Court for life? Why not like 10 years or something like that? That life is a long time. Maybe. Yeah, this was this was discussed at length uh, during the Constitutional Convention, and you can read it in James Madison's notes on the convention. Um, the thinking was that uh, while the presidency, they, they, they put the Electoral College in, in part to protect the slave states, uh, which is why uh, 12 of our first 13 presidents were slaveholders, 
um, but also as a way of kind of buffering the president, the president from public opinion. Um, the legislature, the House of Representatives, which has the greatest power, it's, uh, you know, all spending has to originate in the House, all taxation has to originate in the House, and all declarations of war have to originate in the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, the House is elected every two years, and, of course, the Senate every six years. Right. So um, the idea was that you've got the president who's sort of accountable. You've got the Senate who is accountable to the states. Back then, the states appointed senators. It wasn't until the 1920s that or 1917, I think it was, that we got, uh, you know, direct, uh, direct elections for the Senate. Um, but they wanted to have one body of government, you know, and specifically the judiciary, that was completely insulated from politics, mm-hmm. where we would simply find good, judicious, thoughtful uh, people, and, uh, you know, they would be the arbiters of these disputes. And uh, if they weren't appointed for life, the, the thinking went, then they would be constantly trying to please somebody. Uh, you know, they just wanted them to have that power. Um, this is true not just of the Supreme Court, by the way. It's true of all federal judges. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's laid out in, in the opening of Article 3, uh, or Article 3, Section 2. So um, the, one, of the, one of the things that's being talked about right now is putting a term limit on the Supreme Court. Um, setting it up so that every president or every four years, every presidential term can appoint at least one or maybe two members of the Supreme Court, which means you'd have people cycling on and cycling off at periodic intervals. Um, the only way to do that without changing the Constitution, which would be probably impossible, um, the only way to do that would be through legislation that regulates the court. You would have to keep those people on the federal bench, though, because the Constitution mm-hmm. says they serve for life. It doesn't say Supreme Court justices serve for life. It says all federal judges serve for life. So if somebody went from, say, the Fourth Circuit onto the Supreme Court, then when they retire, if you're going to do term limits, they go back to the Fourth Circuit for the rest of their lives. So that's one of the things that's being discussed right now as a way to uh, basically get some control over an out-of-control and highly politicized court. Do you think that would be a bilateral issue where you could get uh, sane thinking Democrats and Republicans saying, you know, this makes sense for both of us, a little kind of truce here, or uh, are they, or is one side, like are the Democrats in favor of this because they're kind of looking at the short end of the stick for the Supreme Court going forward, and the, the Republicans will say, no, 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 we don't want any changes. Well, back in the uh, Brown versus Board and Roe v. Wade era, Republicans were talking about term limiting Supreme Court justices. Now Democrats mm-hmm. are talking right, about right. Um, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you might find a consensus between the two, although it would still be a political thing. Um, I think really what it is is an acknowledgement that since the early 20th century, the court has been a political body and has been responsive to politics and will continue to be responsive to politics. And so if we're going to do it that way, then, you know, let the people decide who's president and who's running the Senate and then let them decide, you know, well, Mm -hmm. justice. So reflecting the views of which party. Okay. Um, the, uh, what I wanted to ask you was about what can an everyday citizen do? And it sounds like from what you were talking about, Tom, that the power uh, to get out there and vote is, is the way to make changes and to blunt the, the power of the Supreme Court, if you will. And to me, it sounds like if the, if the elections are packed with issues, then we have a better chance of controlling things as a populist populist than if they're about just electing certain individuals. So in other words, it could be uh, uh, marijuana being legal. Make that in the forefront so people say I want it or, or not. 
What's, what are your thoughts on that? Is that the way to go through issues versus individuals to make change? Well, yeah, it, it, it affects the court in as much as it decides who's in, you know, which party controls the Senate, which party controls the White House. But Republicans have been doing this for about 30 years around issues of uh, school prayer, right. um, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in school, um, you know, uh, homosexuality, uh, the, uh, the, the right of religious organizations to have uh, displays, Christmas displays and things like that, particularly on government property. Um, you know, these are so-called wedge issues, guns, um, uh, guns, gays, and God, you know, are the, mm-hmm. are the thing. Sure. Uh, now, now Democrats may have some issues uh, that they could put forward. Marijuana legalization, as you mentioned, is a mm-hmm. good one. Uh, abortion is something that the uh, Republicans have been working, right. campaigning around for a long time. But the majority of Americans now support a woman's right to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that could become something that could work for the Democrats. But generally speaking, um, I, I think it coarsens our political dialogue to have these uh, one, two, three uh, kind of mono or two or three topic um, uh, issues that try that we use to try and Got turn it. debate. I don't think it's going to go away, but okay. I think it's unfortunate. Okay. It's Guys Guys Radio here. Your host, Robert Manny. I'm here with the New York Times bestselling author, author of over 24 books. This one's called The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Tom Hartman, radio personality extraordinaire. I'm so thrilled that you're here with us, Tom. Could we keep going? I'd like to talk about some other topics that are very <laughs> germane to this book um, and also just to your work overall. Um, the first is the corporate, the corporation, um, help me with the term, the corporate persona, the corporate personhood. Corporate personhood. Personhood. Yeah. To me, in my life, that to me has been the number one issue where when that happens, Citizens United, I'm like, this is the worst decision. This is me personally. I usually don't put my thoughts out there in terms of uh, issues. But to me, when you make a corporation a person, I worked at corporations my whole life. They are not people. They're made up of people, but they serve the shareholders. It is not an individual. And it's very dangerous to give them even more power than they already have because they report to nobody. The corporations just do their thing. They're like, and they're as powerful, if not more powerful, than many individual countries around the world. It's, and they're, they're, yeah. they're totally lawless. <laughs> so yeah. what? And certainly how, more did, how did this? How did, how did this happen? What happened? Well, uh, corporations, uh, corporate personhood takes uh, two forms. Um, the first is the more benign form, and this was established in 1815 in a, in a case before the Supreme Court that involved Dartmouth College, and uh, the Supreme Court ruled that Dartmouth College, as a corporation, uh, albeit a nonprofit corporation, had the right to sue and be sued. Um, you know, to have standing in court. And uh, so in that regard, they, are, they were considered artificial persons. Corporations can pay taxes. Corporations can, can be sued. Um, you know, just kind of straightforward stuff. They, they, they can be held to account, uh, things like that. But then in 1886, a case became before the Supreme Court. This came out of California. There were a series of, of uh, six of these cases. They were called the California tax cases. And these came out of uh, Stephen J. Field, who was um, back then, the Supreme Court justices also did what's called riding the circuit, and so, which meant three months out of the year, they were in D.C. being Supreme Court. Nine months out of the year, they were back home in their individual states or regions being the chief justice for the circuit court, for the appeals court. And Stephen J. Fields was on the Supreme Court, and he was also the head of the Ninth Circuit in California. 
uh, you know, which covered California and Nevada. And I, I'm not sure exactly that year what territories were states and what weren't, but anyhow, Ninth Circuit. And he was being bribed by Jay Gould uh, to argue that the railroad corporations, who were at that point in time the richest, most powerful corporations in America, they were the Microsofts or the Amazons of their day, uh, the Standard Oil of their day, uh, that the railroad corporations should have the rights uh, under the Bill of Rights specifically under the 14th Amendment, which says that no person shall be denied equal protection under mm-hmm. the law. And so uh, they made this case, and Stephen Gould agreed with them on the Ninth Circuit, which automatically kicked it to the Supreme Court, where Gould was also sitting, excuse me, Stephen J. Field, uh, which kicked it to the Ninth Circuit, where Field was also sitting. They made this ruling, in this case, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, where the, where the railroad was saying, that Santa Ana County was charging them a penny a mile less in property taxes than Santa Clara County was. And that wasn't equal protection under the law. And as a person, they were entitled to equal protection. And so Santa Ana should, or Santa Clara should drop their taxes by a penny. It went before the Supreme Court. Uh, Robert Sanderson, who was the attorney for the railroads, argued the case on their side. Delphin Delmas, the guy who saved the Redwoods in California, uh, arguing before the California Supreme Court, uh, argued on behalf of Santa Clara County, um, uh, pro bono, in fact, for free. And he argued that um, this is nonsense. This argument that corporations should have rights under the, under the, under the Bill of Rights and, and the 14th Amendment was absolute nonsense. He said, what, do you expect a, a corporation to be able to engage in matrimony? Um, right. Should we have a funeral when a corporation is dissolved? Um, you know, I mean, he made real clear and very specific arguments. And uh, the Supreme Court ended up agreeing with him. And in the end, if you read the decision, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, 1886, all the way to the end, you find that the court ruled against the railroad. They said, you got to pay the tax. And they rejected the railroad's argument of personhood. But uh, the, chief, the clerk of the court at that time, the guy who was there 12 months out of the year instead of just three, was a guy named John Chandler Bancroft Davis, who was the son of the former governor of Massachusetts, very, very wealthy family, old money, big political connections. And he was a former railroad president, the B&O Railroad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so months after the decision, when he, he, as the clerk of the court, he wrote up the decision and submitted it to Bliss and Company, the publisher in New York, who published the, the, uh, you know, the uh, Supreme Court decisions. And at the head of, uh, as a kind of introduction to each decision, the clerk would write what's called a head note. Uh, and the head note would say, basically, here's what the decision's about. It was for lawyers. It was for law students. It was for people trying to, where's that decision on the railroads? Oh, here it is. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It has no legal standing. Now, at the very beginning of the arguments, um, Sanderson had gotten up and given this big speech about, you know, my client has rights under the 14th Amendment. They're a person. And Judge Waite, the Morrison Remick Waite, the chief justice, said to him, no one is disputing that your client is a person, a corporate person. No one's disputing that. They're in court. They have the right to be in court. In other words, he was talking about artificial personhood. Mm-hmm. And, but he said, you know, so let's move on to the merits of the case. And they did, and they talked about taxes and the railroad lost. But, right. but, but uh, uh, more, uh, John Chandler Bancroft Davis put it in the head note. He quoted Waite in the head note as if Waite had said that the corporation should have rights under the 14th Amendment right. because of the person. So the court has never actually ruled that corporations have personhood, but that head note has been quoted more than 30 times by the Supreme Court. Now, it doesn't matter what the court quotes. 
once they've quoted it, it becomes law under mm-hmm. you know judicial review. Right. And so one, the first time that the court quoted its own head note, suddenly corporate personhood, which was just 10, 12 years later, suddenly corporate personhood became real. And then, of course, at Citizens United, they quoted that same head note and said corporations are persons. And in, that, in the years since then, corporations have gotten First Amendment rights of free speech. They've gotten Fourth Amendment rights of privacy. Dow Chemical sued and said the EPA flying an airplane over their plant and taking infrared photos to prove that they were illegally discharging benzene into the atmosphere was a violation of their privacy rights. The Supreme Court agreed with Dow Chemical, gave them Fourth Amendment rights, Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, and now Fourteenth or and Fourteenth Amendment rights for equal pro, equal uh, equal protection of the law. And we really need to overturn those things. Right. I mean, this and, is not- and, and how about the, to me, the biggest one is that there's no limit to donations, political donations. And, you know, I think we, everybody would agree, regardless of which side of the fence you're on, you know, we're buying elections now. I mean, it's, and foreign money can come in too. And it's just, it's, you know, somebody could rise up and work their way through the system. Of course, that's one of the beauties of America, but it's being less and less probable that that's going to happen now because money is, is such a deciding factor in elections now. What are your thoughts on that, Tom? Well, it's very much the case. Um, it, it, we have a long history in the United States of regulating money in our politics. The states have been doing it from right. the get-go. Um, uh, the federal government has been doing it in a big way since 1907 when the Tillman Act was passed, which mm-hmm. made it a federal felony for a corporation to contribute money to any federal candidate for political office. Um, and then after the Nixon bribery scandals, and Nixon was bribed by the milk lobby, he was bribed by, the, by, the, by Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, in both cases, they walked into the White House with suitcases or briefcases full of cash, half million dollars in each case. Um, uh, after the Nixon bribery cases in 74, 75, 76, Congress passed a number of laws regulating money in politics. And then in 1976, the, the Supreme Court, again, you know, no legislature ever suggested this. No Congress ever wanted this. No president ever proposed this. But the Supreme Court, in their infinite wisdom in 76, in a decision called, Marbury, or called uh, uh, Buckley versus Vallejo, said um, that if a billionaire, if a wealthy person wants to own their own personal politician, or even a bunch of politicians, that's just fine. That's free speech that's protected by the First Amendment. And then two years later in the Boston, the Bellotti decision, uh, they extended that logic to, uh, to, to corporations. And that just opened the floodgates in 1979 to corporate and billionaire mm-hmm. money. And the result of that was the election in 1980 of Ronald Reagan. And right. it's been off to the races ever since. Mm-hmm. How can that be overturned? Is it, is it possible that this gets overturned or is the money too deeply rooted now and you've got the corporations and they have the money and they don't, they're not going to want to change the rules. So is this yeah. just a fait accompli or can we do anything about that? Because I'm not even sure, how can we get this on the ballot? Yeah, uh, there's two ways to overturn it. The first is by, and, and, and the one that would be most solid and least likely to, to produce a constitutional crisis or a dispute mm. would be to pass a constitutional amendment that simply says corporations are not people and money is not speech. And there have been a number of constitutional amendments that have reversed Supreme Court decisions mm-hmm. um, in the past. Uh, it's, it's probably the main way to do it. And we have about a third of the states now that have already signed on to that constitutional amendment. The move to amend.org is promoting that. Some conservative groups are promoting that. Uh, Public Citizen, uh, the organization that Ralph Nader started way back in the day, is promoting that. Right. Um, you know, it's a constitutional amendment. The second way that could be done, which is far more uh, problematic, uh, the 
Article, article, section, article three, sec, section three, excuse me, article three, section two of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations defined by Congress, which is, you know, how many people sit on the court, mm-hmm. what's budget, right. where do they meet, when do they meet, but also that they, that their rulings are subject to exceptions defined by Congress. Mm-hmm. And so Congress could literally pass a law tomorrow saying corporations aren't people anymore. And the Supreme Court may not rule on this. This is outside the boundaries of their jurisdiction. It's called court stripping or jurisdiction mm-hmm. stripping. Um, it has not been done in a big way ever in the history of the United States. If it were done, it would provoke a probably a, an extraordinary battle between the Supreme Court and the legislature on which probably several elections would turn. But those are the uh, those two ways. Well, and I suppose the third way would be to get enough people on mm-hmm. the court, you know, start electing presidents and members of the Senate who are opposed to corporate personhood, um, as is the case right now with, for example, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, get enough of those kind of people in a position to, to fill the court uh, with enough justices who are concerned about political corruption that they would overturn their own decision. Supreme Court's reversed itself over a hundred times in its history. So that's not impossible either. Okay. It's Guys Guys Radio, Robert Manny, your host, our special guest, New York Times bestselling author and radio personality, Tom Hartman. We've been discussing his book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. One last question about the courts. As, as we were talking, you mentioned the appointments of some federal judges. And just for the benefit of myself and our, and our listeners, when, when these presidents get in there and they start appointing all these judges, how long are those judges, how long do they remain in power? So if, let's say Trump lost do, do his judges leave then, or are they there for life, or what's their terms? How does that work? Federal judges are appointed for life, regardless of their position, whether they're on the appeals courts or mm-hmm. whether they're on the Supreme Court. And um, so when, when the guy who appoints them leaves, it doesn't matter. The only way you can okay. remove a federal judge, there's two provisions in the Constitution. One says that they may serve during times of good behavior. Um, that has never really been tested with regard to the Supreme Court. It has with some lower court judges, um, but, you know, never with the Supreme Court. And the other is that they may, they're subject to impeachment, just like the president is. And there's only been one attempt to impeach a federal judge or just Supreme Court justice. That was Justice right. Chase in the, in the late 1700s, and it was not successful. Okay. Now, for the benefit of our listeners, Tom, you have written books on spirituality, NLP, ADD, JFK's assassination, the war in the middle class. How do you have time to write when you do all your shows? and interview all these guests and do all this preparation. You are like a machine. How do you, when do you find time to write? How are you inspired? How do you choose your topics? Sure. Robert, I'm just a, an ADD kid who grew up, you know, I'm a hyperactive kid who grew up. I'm serious. You know, that's why I wrote books about ADD. Um, I, I love working. I, I, I guess I'm a workaholic. I, you know, I, I get up at five in the morning, uh, do show prep for my show, which goes on the air at nine. I get off the air at noon. I come home, have lunch. And then I sit at my computer and write until around five or six in the evening, uh, you know, watch the news and go to bed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, five days a week. And then I write for a few hours on, on Saturday and Sunday on weekends. Um, and, and pretty much always have. I, you know, I just, I enjoy writing. My mother was an English major, uh, mm-hmm. you know, graduate with a degree in English Lit and, and uh, shared her uh, passion for English with me. My dad wanted to be a college professor, a uh, history professor. He had to drop out of college because mom got pregnant with me, but... Mm-hmm. Um, he had over 20,000 books in his basement, probably half of them were history. And I just grew up with this love of history and this love of writing and reading. And, and so it's, it's, uh, 
you know, a, a little bit of discipline goes a long way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes compare writing to picking raspberries. Uh, you know, some days you go out and you just get quarts and quarts of them, you know, right. and other days you go out and you come home with, you know, a, a handful of berries and, and bloody fingers, you know, bloody mm-hmm. hands. Um, so when you, that's why sometimes I'll stay on every page for hours. So when you pick your topic, do you know, you know, where the book's going? Uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking of it from like novel terms almost where uh, a lot of writers will say, okay, I know how the book's going to end. It's just a matter of how I get there. Keep that spine going. When you're writing uh, nonfiction, what's your process, if you will, besides yeah. just writing, writing, well, writing? Do you have a met- methodology, if you will? Yeah, I've, I've written in, uh, seven or eight novels and published two of them, and uh, they're in both cases, I, I frankly didn't know how they were going to end, and, and, and therefore they weren't particularly good novels. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, writing is one of those things that you learn by doing, sort of like right. art. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is an art, really. And um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke said, your first million words are practice. That was certainly the case mm-hmm. for me. Um, with regard to nonfiction, I, I think of that more like pregnancy. You know, you get a little bit, you get pregnant with an idea. Um, I, I acquired a copy of the collected works of Thomas Jefferson in the late nineties. And, uh, we had just sold a, an advertising agency in Atlanta. I was retired. I had some time. Um, and I spent about a year and a half reading it and mm-hmm. getting, you know, Jefferson's rants about the Supreme court and judicial review and all this stuff. And that, that got me pregnant with the idea. And I've been wanting to write a book mm-hmm. about it ever since. Amazing. And so when BK publishers came to me and said, you know, we'd like you to write some small books. Uh, I did one on guns and the second amendment that came out six months ago. And then, you know, we said, mm-hmm. what else do you want to write about? And I said, I want to write about the Supreme court and judicial review. And so I've been kind of pregnant with that one for almost two decades and, you know, finally gave birth to the book. And, and I find that that's the best process. If, if you're really filled with an idea, uh, you know, a passion for it, if you want to tell your friends about it, if you want to tell your neighbors about it, right. um, then it's hard not to write a book about it if you have the skill to do that. Um, let's talk about, if you, if you don't mind, I know you have a book coming out very soon about ADD. Yeah, actually, it came out last, last uh, two weeks ago. Okay. Uh, ADHD, Hunter in a Farmer's World. Okay. How, tell us a little bit about that. I, I have a son, he's six, and uh, he's a, a compulsive reader. He's always active. And I'm like, he's, he's just at the point where he, to me, like he's where he should be. And you can't teach somebody, uh, you can't force a kid to read or to eat or to sleep. They're going to do it when they want anyhow. But like yeah. my son will, he, when he sits to ha- have his breakfast, he has to have a book in front of him. He's reading mystery books and he's six years old and he can't stop That's reading. Great. We have a, 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 and he's just, and he keeps building stuff and building stuff and building stuff. And I take him to the playground and he's running around and running around and running around. And I'm like, wow, he's like super active and his mind's super active. And some people would say, well, maybe that's too active. And other people say, no, that's how it's supposed to be. Tell us your perspective on how, how this, uh, there's been a distortion in like, what is ADHD? What is ADD? How a lot of kids are healthy, but are being deemed not healthy and they're given drugs and stuff. What's going on? Back in the late seventies and early eighties, I was the executive director of a residential treatment facility for severely abused and emotionally screwed up kids. And uh, to use a technical term. And um, I wrote a monograph. Uh, that was published in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry in 1980 about the hyperactive syndrome, which is what it was called back then. They called it hyperkinesis. 
And I suggested that this might not be a disease. This might be an adaptive, evolutionarily adaptive mechanism. Um, that kind of sat on the shelf uh, or on the back of my mind for uh, a few years until my son was uh, failing in uh, middle school. He hit the wall in seventh grade, as kids are wont to do, and uh, boys in particular. Was he and, bored? Was he bored because uh, of uh, yeah, the, 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 the curriculum wasn't up to his? Yeah, I, I think okay. he wasn't being challenged. Yeah, and, and, and we, uh, we proved that hypothesis by putting him in a private school uh, where he had where he could go as fast as he wanted, and suddenly he was a straight-A student. But in any case, when he was first failing in, in public schools, we took him to a, an educational testing specialist who gave him the test for ADHD and said, uh, back then it was called ADD. Um, uh, this was the 90s. And uh, this guy sat him down and said, son, you've got a brain disease. Called ADD, your your brain doesn't work right, and you know it's sort of like people who don't see well. You, you need to wear glasses, and the glasses is this drug called Ritalin, and uh, you know, and get ready because you know you're more likely to end up in jail. You're probably not going to be able to go to college. I mean, he just gave my son a, this very very bleak uh, right. outlook on life. Uh, in fact, uh, my son broke down crying in the guy's office. So after that happened, I you know the reason I went back came back home and I. And I was like, that isn't right. That can't be right. And so I really dug into the, into the literature on, on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the three principal criteria for ADHD are uh, impulsivity, uh, you know, distractibility, and a need for, for risk-taking, basically. You know? uh, and it occurred to me, if in a hunting-gathering society, mm-hmm. which is how we all evolved, you know, for three million years, humans were hunter-gatherers, sure. In a hunting gathering and prehumans, in a hunting gathering society, if I'm out walking through the woods looking for lunch, and I don't notice that flash of light over there in the bushes that's a rabbit, I'm going to starve. Or if I don't notice that flash of light over there that's a bear, I'm going to die. So distractibility, constantly scanning your environment, that's an asset, not mm-hmm. a liability in a hunting gathering world. Similarly, impulsivity. If I'm chasing a rabbit through the forest, the deer, deer runs by. And I pull out a notepad and a pencil and say, well, let's do a risk-benefit analysis. Let's see, deer, more meat. Bunny, easier to catch. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're both gone, right? right? You've got to make a decision and be acting on it before you even realized you've engaged in a cognitive process that you've thought about. It. That's mm-hmm. the dictionary definition of impulsivity. Again, a survival skill in a hunting gathering right. system. And finally, um, if you woke up in the morning, if you were very risk-averse, if you woke up in the morning and said, you know, I don't want to leave the caves today because there's there's things out there that want to eat me as much as I want to eat them, you'd starve. So, you know, the willingness, the enthusiasm right. for taking risk uh, would become an absolutely necessary thing. And so, you know, I, I, but on the other hand, when we became farmers, those things all become liabilities. You know, you can't be distractible when you're sitting there watching the wheat grow and say, well, you know, exactly. I'll just go off and play in the forest. Um, you can't be impulsive. You can't say, well, wheat last year was great, but let's plant ragweed this year. That sounds more interesting. Everybody would die. And, and you got to be willing to sit there and just watch the, the wheat grow. You know, in other words, be mm-hmm. tolerant of boredom. Uh, so a whole different set, uh, set of skills mm-hmm. became necessary with the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution. So I, wow. I think ADHD is actually a survival skill and a gift. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Listen, this has been an amazing conversation. I have all sorts of questions. So hopefully you can come back at some point because you've been an incredible guest. You've really helped me. You've helped our audience. And I love the work you're doing. And please keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it. 
And thanks for being on Guys Guys Radio. Could you tell everybody where they can find you, Tom? Sure. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, TomHartman.com. However you spell it to get there. We've got all the misspellings. Okay. <laughs> it all works. Wow, what a terrific conversation. Remember to get the book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Tom also has 23, I think, other books and a 25th one coming out now. And he's a best-selling author. And his show is The Tom Hartman Program. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Robert. All right, Guys Guys Radio, Robert Manor, your host. We just interviewed Tom Hartman, the radio host extraordinaire of the Tom Hartman program and best-selling New York Times author of over 24 books, and we talked about the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, what did we learn from that discussion? I think what we learned was that the Supreme Court, uh, its purpose has kind of shifted over time from one of uh, arbitrating disagreements in the legal field uh, where uh, decisions have gotten kicked up higher and higher. Uh, and now it's become a place where some laws are actually made by the Supreme Court, apparently. And it doesn't seem like that was the purpose originally. Also, the Supreme Court's gotten politicized, and that's happened over time. So it's good to know that, but it's still happening. And, you know, it really is up to the citizens to determine how the country is run. And the best way to do that is to get out there and vote. And hopefully the more issues that are on the ballot, the more effective we can be in determining the course of our country and also of our lives. So that's kind of what I got out of the show. I hope you got the same thing. So Tom Hartman, again, uh, the Tom Hartman program. So check him out. Also, Guys Guys Radio. Uh, we're on every Wednesday evening on KCAA 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. We're on Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you want to support the show, subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, rate, review. Um, we're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blog Talk Radio, CastBox. You can stream the show on kca.com or even my website, robertmanni.com. You'll also find over 300 blogs about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. And again, the whole Guys Guys movement began with my novel, The Guys Guys Guide to Love, which has been called The Male Sex in the City. It's about two guys in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. And what could be wrong with that, right? So... Guys Guys Radio will be back next week with another show. I thank you for listening. As I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>